0: I am bad at taking my meds. I got a certain type of arthritis, which the doctors say is the most painful kind of arthritis one can have. And I remember uh, experiencing this pain, and it is like no other pain I've felt before. Uh, and I think I've experienced some, uh, a pretty good amount of pain, so I have fractured my ankle playing basketball. I've dislocated my shoulder playing basketball, too. You know, I've even got kicked in the head doing karate. I've had surgery, but the arthritis pain is absolutely insane. So you can imagine the relief and the promise of hope that I received when I got my diagnosis. This is what your problem is, and this is how we can fix it. So in getting the pain meds, I experienced a lot of relief. I experienced a lot of promise of hope. There was the pain meds, and then there was, more importantly, the medicine that actually dealt with uh, the actual cause of the arthritis. And I thank God for medicine. I thank God for medicine. I love medicine. It promises some degree of freedom. It promises some degree of freedom. I just have to take them. But I'll be honest, it's not easy for me to take them. And I know for others, maybe some of you guys, it's also not easy for you to take them, right? Some forget where they put them. That's not my problem. I got pills everywhere. I got pills in the kitchen. I got pills in my bedroom. I got pills in the pill box. I got loose pills, sometimes in the kitchen and sometimes on my nightstand and even sometimes in my pockets. I got pills in the cupboard, so I have been known to have pills everywhere. Lately, I've been doing a little bit better at knowing where, where my pills are, but even when I am doing better, better I still have problems. Yesterday, for example, my uh, dad took us all out, my family out to Korean barbecue, and uh, you know the arthritis I have, uh, the pain comes on, it is worsened when I eat meat, and so I'm limited to one to four ounces of meat a day. Okay, so yesterday I'm thinking, okay, we're gonna all you can eat Korean barbecue. I better go home and take my pills, right? So I remember, pretty good at remembering. So I'm all excited to eat my meat. I'm all excited to eat my pork jowls. But you know, when I get home, I'm thinking like, okay, great, I gotta take my meds. I gotta keep the bad stuff away. So when we get home, Mel reminds me take my meds. But when I go to look for some, I realize I ran out. even though I know the hope of freedom, that the medicine will, in fact, work. i got problems taking it. It is work, in fact, to live in freedom. It is work to live in freedom. Living in freedom from pain, freedom from arthritis, friends, it is not easy in some ways. It takes effort, daily effort, to live in freedom. While that is a relatively silly example It does reflect the truths found about the Christian life in regards to the Christian life. And it's what our passage reminds us today. We have, in fact, freedom from sin. But we actually need to fight sin. And the fact that we have freedom from sin is why we can fight sin. So please turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 8. And we are in verses 12 to 14. Romans chapter 8, verses 12 to 14. Once again, we are looking at the fact that we have freedom from sin. But that's actually why we need to fight sin and why we can fight sin. I'll go ahead and read Romans chapter 8, and I'll actually read from 1 to 17. 1 to 17. Just go ahead and follow along with me right now. Paul says here, writing in the middle of the uh, 5th century A.D., sorry, the 5th decade A.D., he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. I don't know if you caught all those benefits that were mentioned there, the benefits, the blessings that come with being in Christ Jesus. He starts there in, look there in verse number one of chapter eight. He says that there is no condemnation for sinners who are in Jesus Christ, who have believed on Jesus Christ. He mentions that there is freedom from this tyranny, this power of sin, and also the judgment that comes along with sin, that is the condemnation and eternal death. And all of these wonderful blessings are secured for us because God has given His very Spirit to dwell with us. It's referred to as the Spirit dwelling in us, Christ in us, the Bible says. Because God has given his spirit to dwell in us, sinners saved by grace start to then think the very ways in which God does. We want the things God wants. We hate the things God hates. Naturally so. You hear this language of fatherhood and us being children of God. For those who have believed, children, right, they, they bear the characteristics of the father. Children look like their father in heaven. We have the spirit of Christ who brings about belief in Christ and now... Christians belong to him. We belong to Christ. This theme of belonging here is very much clear in verses 12 to 17. We focus on 12 to 14. It also is there. We belong to God. We are sons of God. He doesn't doesn't mean to exclude women here. The fact that a woman is called a son of God is actually a term of, of great importance because women are added to the inheritance. You share in the same inheritance that Men do. We are all sons of God in the Son that is Jesus Christ. So as we continue this theme of belonging to God, we look at the blessings that come from believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we see first, point number one, we see first, God has won for us freedom. This is a blessing that comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. As he applies it to our lives, the power of the Spirit, we have freedom. God has won for us freedom. This freedom spoken of, spoken of in the book of Romans, in the book, of the, in, the book in the Bible, uh, is a freedom from, once again, this tyranny, this power, this dominion of sin and death. And frankly, every human being is subject to this fear, this tyranny of sin and death. We see in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, it says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, everybody God says, has rebelled against him. We desire certain things. God created us to be in a relationship with him, yet we rebelled against him. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And because of that, we have earned for ourselves just condemnation. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Ultimately here, he's talking about eternal death. It is condemnation. And friends, this death sentence hangs over our heads, whether we acknowledge it or not. And so we are enslaved, the Bible says, we are enslaved to this condemnation. We are enslaved to the sin, to this death. The question then becomes, how exactly can we be set free? And that's why Paul is actually writing this book to clarify for us that the righteousness of God has been revealed to unrighteous sinners who deserve death. They can have, we can have the righteousness of God. In Jesus Christ, the revelation of the righteousness of God from faith for faith. Where we had sinned against God and earned for our self-judgment, God himself, because of his great love for us, sends Jesus Christ to take on our punishment as a substitute on the cross. And so Christ pays for our sin. And so now we have, in relation to freedom, we have freedom from condemnation. We have freedom from condemnation. Right, because of sin, sinners are unrighteous, and if we are to stand before the judge, if we are to stand before the judge, he would, in fact, declare us guilty and unrighteous. But those, are, those of us who are in Christ Jesus, God sees us through the righteousness of his Son. God declares us as righteous by believing upon him in faith. Yes, we are sinners, but, in fact, we are declared righteous in the courts of heaven. We are freed from condemnation. Not only are we freed from condemnation, we have freedom from judgment. We have freedom from judgment. The freedom is one because Christ takes our judgment upon himself so that those who turn to him and trust in him by faith don't have to experience judgment. This is just a summary here. This is what I'm doing, summarizing the book of Romans, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But not only do followers of Jesus Christ have freedom from condemnation, not only do we have freedom from judgment, we also have freedom from the power of sin. Freedom from the power of sin. Christians are those who are united to Jesus Christ, united to Jesus Christ. And so as Christ died on the cross for, died to sin once and for all, so we too, those of us who believe in him, have died to sin. And just as Jesus Christ got up from the grave to new life, so we who believe on him have risen to new life. And so therefore the power of sin is destroyed. We're free. And all of this freedom comes not because of anything that we have done, as if we earned it for ourselves. All of this freedom comes because of, because of what Christ has done for those, who, those of us who trust in him by faith, that he is in fact Lord and Savior. So this idea of freedom that I've just summarized from judgment, condemnation, power of sin, all of that he brings, we've got to keep in mind as we go to verse 12, the beginning of our section here, our focus for today. And he says here that we, are free to, that we are free because we are no longer debtors. He says we are no longer debtors. Look there at verse 12. He says, so then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh that is sin. So when you, think, when you hear, read flesh, think sin, the power of sin. And this freedom in Christ means that Christians are not debtors to the flesh. All right, so if you've ever borrowed money from, a, from, a, for, from anybody, right, you know what it means to be in debt to someone. right? You know what it means to be in debt to someone. Uh, you are under an obligation. And so many of you guys even know right now a legal obligation hangs over you. You are legally obligated to pay somebody back. And if you default on your payments, well, what happens? right, the, the, someone's going to come along and take what you think you bought, take what you think you own, they're going to take your car, they could take your house, they could take your PlayStation, and so you live as a debtor, right, under obligation, and speaking of this general concept of being a debtor, I'm not, don't think about making payments here as we think about how this applies to the gospel and our lives as sinners, right, thinking of this general concept of being a debtor, this is what it is like as a sinner, apart from Jesus Christ. Apart from Christ, we all must pay the penalty. We all must owe this debt, the penalty of sin that is death. But for those who belong to Christ, our passage says that you are debtors no longer. You really are free, he says. You are under absolutely no obligation to the power and the penalty of sin, that's the concept of freedom that he's talking about when he says that you are debtors no longer. And again, this freedom here is for those who trust by faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This freedom comes in the spirit of Christ. Look there at 8.2. 8.2. The law of the spirit of life has set you free. The law of the spirit of life has set you free. Where? In the realm in Christ Christ in Christ Jesus, from the law of sin and death. So as mentioned before, we want to make sure that when we think of the Spirit of God, you always think of Christ, the God-man. right? When you think of the Spirit, you want to think of Christ, the God-man. Those two things are go together. The Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ in, the, in Romans chapter 8. So when it comes to the Spirit, we see the freedom that comes in Christ Jesus. So when you think freedom in Christ that comes about in Christ, in his person, in his work, and in his spirit. That's where freedom in Christ comes from. That's what 8.2 refers to. The spirit gives us freedom in Christ the person. You might ask, okay, well, what exactly is the connection? How exactly does that work? It is the spirit of Christ who opens our hearts to behold and embrace by faith who Christ is and what he has done. That's what the Spirit's work does in us. It opens our hearts to behold and embrace all that Christ is and all that he has done. And this freedom, this freedom by the Spirit of Jesus Christ comes about in two ways. comes about in two ways. First, we have freedom, or freedom is one, through the Spirit's work of regeneration. The Spirit's work of regeneration, where the Spirit causes somebody to be born again. This born-again language there, I think, or, or this idea of regeneration, uh, is referred to there in 8.15. Look there. It's referred to by Paul here, I think. It says that the one who has faith in, in Christ is one who receives. It's somebody who receives the Spirit. Right? And he's not just writing to some Christians here as if it's the more spiritual Christians who live in the Spirit, receive the Spirit. He's talking about all Christians here. All Christians have received the Spirit. And this language of regeneration, this language of being born again, comes from Jesus' words to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He says there uh, that those who are born again are those who are born of the Spirit. Right? Nicodemus is wondering, how is it that I enter in the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, well, those who are born of the Spirit are those who are born again. And again, it is all Christians who are born again. And this happens in our belief. When we are converted, we are born again. It's just what happens in us. Uh, We can also think of the conversion of Lydia in Acts chapter 16. If you're thinking about how does one become a Christian here, well, it's through regeneration. Um, Lydia in Acts chapter 16, it says there, the Lord opened Lydia's heart to believe. The Lord opened Lydia's heart to believe. And there it's talking about believe the things that Paul was talking about the gospel. And if you're still wondering, okay, so how does this work? Like, do I believe at, uh, you know, 1120? Or sorry, am I regenerated? Does God open my heart at 1120 and then I exercise faith at, let's say, 1130? Or maybe even after, maybe even after a decade of being regenerated. That's not, that's not what they're going at here. In terms of time, it all happens at the same time. When you believe, well, you, you confess in your, in your heart that the Lord is Jesus, that Jesus is Lord, because you have the Spirit in you. So don't think time Just think everything happens together as one whole package. When you exercise faith, you know that you are regenerated. When you're regenerated, you're going to exercise faith in Jesus Christ. In relation to this language of God changing our hearts, listen to this. 1 Corinthians 12.3 says, No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Spirit. That's super clear, right? No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the spirit. And of course, he does not mean no one can verbalize the, the, uh, that, those very words that Jesus is Lord. There's plenty of people who claim that Jesus is Lord, but who really do not believe that Jesus is Lord. He's talking about believing in their hearts and such a belief working out through their mouths that they confess the wonderful statement, the foundation of the church, that Jesus is Lord. Only one who is of the Spirit, in the Spirit, who receives the Spirit, embraces Jesus and His rule. And if you stop for a moment, right, the the fact that the Spirit of Christ sovereignly works in this way, opening hearts, bringing about faith, causing us to be born again, it's what we sung about in that song, In My Heart. All of this makes sense. We just have to think back to what the Bible says about us, even in the book of Romans, for example, about about how dark. Our minds and our hearts are because of indwelling sin. It makes entire sense. Sinful man, according to Romans 1 and 2, what what do we do? We suppress the truth about God, we actively suppress it. Apart from Christ, uh, Paul says that we have become futile in our minds and that we even have darkened hearts. Of course, therefore, sinful man needs nothing less than God Almighty to open our eyes to see his glory to enlighten our minds to behold his truth and to replace our hard hearts for hearts of flesh that beat for Christ. And when the Spirit opens and enlightens hearts and minds and gives us new hearts, we are set free from the tyranny of sin as we believe in Christ and his work on the cross. So, friends, if you are a Christian, right, if you have truly repented of your sins and you believe on Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God has regenerated you. Think back to Jesus' words in John chapter 3, the Spirit of God blows where it wills. He is sovereign and He has set His love upon you and given you the new birth. As, As 1 Peter 1 says, He has caused you to be born again to a living hope. Like Lydia, God opened your heart to believe the gospel. You now say... Christ is Lord from the heart because you are in the Spirit, receive the Spirit, Christ is in you. Friends, praise God for His sovereign work of regeneration because God sees inability and meets it with sovereign ability in the Spirit of Jesus Christ. That is the first way the Spirit wins His people freedom, the Spirit's work of regeneration. The second way the Spirit brings freedom is in His leading you can think about, you know, a couple of words that rhyme. You see the Spirit's freeing in regeneration. Then you see the Spirit's leading. It all kind of falls underneath the big umbrella of how the Spirit has won us freedom. Here we see freedom. Now we see his leading. We hear this leading language there in Romans 8, 14. Look there. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now, do not think that this leading is like some sort of divine guidance. Like, how do I know what I should do today according to God's will? That's actually not what he's talking about here. That is not what he's talking about. He's not talking about divine guidance. To be spirit-led is to be controlled by the Spirit of Christ, to be governed by the Spirit of Christ, to have a whole life direction where you are aimed at serving Jesus Christ. And we see this in our verses here, the Spirit's leading is made known in the Spirit's obeying. The Spirit's leading is made known in a Christian's obeying. It's plain for everybody to see. Look there in verse 13, right? We just want to go to the words. You mean to be Spirit-led. It says there, verse 13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. By the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live for... Further explanation, let me continue explaining why you will live if you put to death the deeds of the body and the spirit. It's because those who are led by the spirit of God, it's those who are sons of God. can't get away from the tight language that Paul's using here. He is saying that the spirit's leading is made known in the Christians obeying. How do you know you will live or be given eternal life? According to the passage, it's because... Uh, that's what sons of God are given. God the Father gives his sons eternal life. Well, how is it that I know that I am a son of God? It's because you are led by the Spirit. Well, how are you led by the Spirit? It's because you put to death the deeds of the body. Those who are spirit-led are those who pursue holiness. So the Spirit's leading is made known in the Christians obeying. Friends, how's that for being Spirit-led? I used to think that being spirit-led meant all sorts of things, but it's so interesting. I didn't associate just the good old plain old Christian obedience here, good old holiness. It's a corrective for us today, isn't it? I mean, do you look around and see someone who's fighting sin and think, man, that guy is spirit-led? What do you typically associate with Christians and being spirit-led? some sort of spontaneity in their praise, spontaneity in prayer, or is it just a regular good old stuff of godliness that we see here on earth? I think, we, I think here we, are, we have a little bit of an explanation about why the first deacons were chosen. In Acts chapter 6, there are known to be men full of the Spirit. Why is that? Because if we look at the qualifications for the deacon, right, the servant of the church, uh, we're considering, you know, Jared right now to be the next deacon of ushers and ordinances. What are they known for? It's just like the regular good old stuff of godliness. They live their lives like Christ would want us to live. That's being spirit-led. So, friends, I really hope you come to appreciate those who are pursuing godliness because it is they who are spirit-led. Some dude up here who wants to sing chants, I might not want to sing chant with you, but somebody who is singing a chant and the the content of the chant might be full of the gospel of Jesus Christ and he is also pursuing godliness, spirit-led. Someone who wants to sing stodgy old hymns that I personally might not necessarily enjoy singing, but they are godly, they are spirit-led. Someone who's exercising hospitality, because they love Jesus, they are spirit-led. This is a corrective here. Those who are spirit-led, those who are obedient, those who are uh, obedient, those who love stuff of holiness, those who love the stuff of Christ. So he says there, and we're going back to the main point here, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to it. We're free. We're free from condemnation. Now those who live according to the flesh, he says there, that comes with death, right? It comes with death. But again here, he's, he's seeking to encourage Christians. He said, no, we are free from sin because Christ, he died on the cross because of his work, because of his spirit that has now opened our hearts to behold Christ and receive all that he has done. So while we have freedom, okay, closing up point number one, while we have freedom, verse 13 brings a certain kind of complication to things, right? If you're exploring Christianity, you're trying to wonder what, is this, what does all this freedom mean? Verse 13, I kind of, I mean, you know, it brings up a little bit of complication. 12 says that we have freedom. Verse 13 says that living the life of freedom, though, still requires a fight. It still requires a fight. This brings us to point number two. It is because Christ won us freedom from sin that we now fight against sin. I'll repeat that. Point number two. It is because Christ won us freedom from sin that we now fight against sin. Frankly, this fight against sin is necessary. This fight against sin is necessary. It's necessary. If you look there verse 13, we see so clearly, if you live according to the spirit flesh you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So what's at stake there? Your very own souls. That's why the fight is necessary for a Christian It's necessary because if we don't care to fight and therefore not fight, we actually show ourselves to not be on Christ's side, no matter what you think. You might claim to be a Christian, but if you aren't putting to death the deeds of the body, if you aren't doing these things, you actually will find yourself not to be on Christ's side. We know that it is necessary because life and death, your very own soul is at stake. Now, to understand this dynamic of why this fight is necessary, this fight in our freedom, it helps if we step back a little bit. We're going to step back a little bit and look at the grand scheme of what God is doing in salvation history, what God is doing in salvation history. The book of Revelation, right, at the end. The book of Revelation tells us that the fight will once and for all be over in the return of the king. When Jesus Christ returns, Lord Jesus Christ sits on his throne once and for all, and everything is felt, everything feels His reign and rule. I mean, don't get me wrong, Christ did indeed defeat, destroy sin and death on the cross. He really did indeed free those slavery who believe in Him. Right? That's what He talks about that. We are, in fact, free. That's what He says in the book of Romans. We, are. we possess this freedom even right now. The evil one, has been decisively defeated. But friends, he is not going out without a fight. Right? Though defeated, he still fights until his very last breath. And just think for a moment here. If you are competitive, if you are competitive, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Whether you compete in uh, competitive sports or let's say fantasy basketball, March Madness leagues. Whether you compete in board games or in life, you know. That when you have lost, right, you know it is then that you really want to stick it to your opponent. Just to make their winning all the more difficult. Friends, that's exactly what's going on with Satan. Christians, that's what Satan is doing even right now. He knows that he is lost. Satan knows that he has even been bound as Jesus Christ got up from the dead, showing that sin and death had no mastery over him and does not have mastery over those who are in him. But friends, that doesn't stop him from writhing around in hatred until the very last breath. In fact, we know this is what Satan will do as he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And he does this all the way until Christ comes back, all the way until, until Christ finally throws Satan into the prison that is the lake of fire and throws away the key. That's what we see in the Scriptures. We have been saved already. But the fight against sin is still a necessity. Final salvation is not yet, even though we taste it already. It's like we have been raised from the dead. For those of you who watch zombie flicks or zombie play zombie games, right? It's like we've been raised from the dead. We are no longer spiritual zombies who fight against the king. Praise God. Freedom from condemnation. We know that the zombies are going to get destroyed. God has, in fact, changed us. He has saved us. He has freed us. And now he calls us to the land of rest. But guess what? As we make our way to one day seeing Christ face to face, you realize that we now face the onslaught we participated in. We now face the onslaught that we once participated in. We are not under our old master sin. We don't owe sin anything but yet we are still to fight. Now that we are free from our old master, we've transferred allegiances, right? Now that we freely obligate ourselves to Christ, our wonderful Lord, do you know what Christ says that we owe sin in our lives? Right, we don't owe sin anything as, we, as if uh, sin still had dominion over us. But now that we are under the Lord, do you know what our Lord calls us to owe sin? You look there in verse 13. He says there, but if by the Spirit, the middle of 13, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, he says there, you will live. That's what we owe sin. We owe its death. Christians are sin slayers. We are to put it to death. This is really strong language here. We owe sin in our lives, holy hostility, having now the Spirit of Christ in us. The fight is necessary. Christians are sin slayers on a mission to put sin in our lives to death. This is just part of having the mind of Christ. This is just part of having the mind of God. This is another reason why it's necessary, why the fight is necessary, because it necessarily will happen when the things of Christ become ours. Putting to death the deeds of the body will necessarily happen when the things of God become ours. What was the mind of Christ towards sin? In the desert, Christ resisted sin, Satan's temptation, did he not? In his ministry of miracles, what was he doing to sin and its power? I mean, he certainly was attesting to the fact that he was the son. God, the God-man himself, having power over all of these things. But what was he also doing? He was also pushing back sin. In his miracles, he was also undoing the effects of sin, right? Through sin comes sin and death. But when Jesus is working his miracles, what he's doing? He's pushing back the forces of sin and death. He reverses, reverses the effects of sin. And then on the cross and in his resurrection, did not Jesus Christ put sin and death To open shame, Christ wiped away the debt of sin, and the power of sin and death could no longer hold him. Christians who have that Christ as our trailblazer, Christians who have that Spirit of Christ dwelling in us, Christ Himself in us, of course, we're going to be slaying sin. Because Christ now governs us. Christ now controls us. That's what it means to be led by the Spirit of God, led by the Spirit of Christ, having Christ in us. Right? This is no take-it-easy life. This is no, let's use God's grace as an excuse to sin life. Christians indeed have freedom from the power of sin, but our freedom in Christ necessarily involves fighting against sin. We need to fight because life and death are at stake. It is necessary. We should here feel the weight and warning that comes in verse 13. I'll read it again. For if you, Christian, live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Regarding this warning, he says here, if you give yourself, if you claim to be a Christian, yet you give yourself to living according to the flesh, It shows actually that you are not Christian. You do not belong to Jesus Christ. Christ is not in you. And we see the result. You will die. You go to hell. That's what he's talking about. You still face condemnation. You still face the judgment if the spirit of Christ is not in you. In terms of application, friends, if you... Right now, claim to believe in Jesus Christ, the one who came to kill sin, the one who commands Christians to kill sin, but you still live in sin. I don't know what you mean when you say that you're a Christian or that you love Jesus or that you actually have the mind of Christ or that you actually love the Spirit of God. Here, the true Christian does not go on living in sin. And again, he makes clear anyone who does is not a true Christian. I mean, so, so you got you to gotta ask yourself, like, what does it mean when one says, I am a Christian, but I'm actually at peace with the very things God hates? Like, that's a good idea. It, it doesn't make sense. How can one say, I'm comfortable in the very things that God has set his holy wrath against? It doesn't make sense. He says earlier, right, in, in Romans chapter 6, that sin is stuff is the stuff that makes us ashamed. It's the stuff that leads to death. So, friends, if you are not ashamed of the things that God condemns, Christ is not in you. Friends, Romans, though, applies to you. Paul directed a lot of this letter addressing people who thought that they were followers of God, but who really were not. But, of course, even though you are unrighteous, just like every Christian knows what it's like to be unrighteous, because we are unrighteous apart from the Spirit of God. We are unrighteous before we were saved, right? God's righteousness can be for you if you turn from your sins and believe on Him. God saves unrighteous people. That's the wonderful so the, the news for you. The call to you is to repent of your sins and believe on Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. You will be renewed. You will be set apart for His good use. And you will have the mind of God. You will grow in having the mind of God. But know that while freedom from sin is promised, once again, fighting sin is necessary. Fighting sin is always necessary. We go back to the command. There is basically a command here in verse 13. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. There he's talking about eternal life, eternal life. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This just echoes what Paul has written earlier. Basically the, basically, the command to put sin to death. Look there in 6.12. He says there, Let's not sin, therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Why is that? Because God, the righteous one, has declared us righteous. We are his people. We have his Holy Spirit, and therefore we will be holy, and we will bear the fruits of the Spirit. There again, we see that fighting sin in our lives is necessary. We are to put it to death. But did you notice how the manner, how we are to put sin to death? It says there, by the Spirit. We are to put it to death. We are to be sin slayers by the Spirit. Friends, that is what makes fighting sin possible. We saw that it's necessary. Our souls, eternally, are at stake. Necessary also in a different way because when we have the Holy Spirit, we're going to think holy things and we're going to kill sin. But here not only is necessary, we see that it's also possible. It's almost like he says, look, Christian, if you are discouraged in your, in your faults, in your sins, in your stumblings, right, right, we know that freedom exists. We know that we are justified before God. He says, look, if you are overwhelmed in your fight or the thought that you have to fight, here we are reminded that it is by the Spirit. That the fight against sin is possible. Do you know what I mean by when I say it is possible? Right. There's only two options in relation to sin. You are either enslaved and pursuing sin, or you are freed and fighting sin. You are either enslaved and pursuing sin, or you are freed and fighting sin. Which would you rather be? Now that Christians are free in Christ, we are now to fight in Christ. It is made possible, thank the Lord, because before we were just enslaved and pursuing, but now we are freed and fighting, all by faith, all in the power of Christ, by the Spirit. You know, when I was uh, a younger Christian, uh, basically I would consider myself a young um, and in some ways immature Christian for the first 10 years of my life as a Christian, so ages 14 to 24, I thought killing sin just meant getting after it. Getting after it. So an example, right? Hey, you know, I struggle with laziness. The answer is just do more. I'm a Christian. If you struggle with anger, which I certainly did, my parents can tell you, the answer is just be nice. I'm a Christian. If I struggle with sexual sin and lust and temptation, which I did, the answer is I'm a Christian. Just put a code on your computer and get some accountability. But friends, if human effort in getting after it is all, is, if that is everything, if that's the sum of killing sin, that is actually not killing sin God's way. It is actually not killing sin God's way, right? Just think about it. There's lots of people that get after it and don't want to be lazy. There's lots of people, plenty of non-Christians, who teach other people how to get stuff done. There's a lot of non-Christians who want peace and not anger, right? There's a lot of non-Christians who give themselves to striving for inner peace from inside of themselves, for example. There's a lot of non-Christians that you can go and talk to about how they don't want to cheat on their spouses. Instead, they want sexual fidelity. One of those things are distinctly Christian because they don't ultimately have God's purposes in mind. Is it good? And should we thank God where we see a lot of people saying, hey, we shouldn't be lazy? Yes. Should we rejoice in God's common grace that people, non-Christians and Christians, will say, we do need a peace? Yes, we thank God for that. Should we thank God that there are people who love fidelity? Yes, we should, whether they be Christians or none. But none of those things, no matter how moral they are, have God's ultimate purposes in mind. Friends, what makes the Christians battle Christian is that we kill sin by the Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. That is Spirit-led human effort. Spirit-led human effort. Never human effort on its own. Spirit-led human effort. And church, that makes all the difference. So what does it look like to kill sin by the Spirit? What does it look like to kill sin by the Spirit? It is certainly not any sort of mystical way of resisting sin like you've got to unlock the secret mystery code in order to properly kill sin. No, actually, the program of biblical spirituality is actually really simple. It is incredibly simple. Here's the phrase that I think sums it up well. Spirit-led human effort in the means of grace. Spirit-led human effort in the means of grace. The means of grace there is just talking about how God commands us and calls us to grow in our spirituality. It is us putting effort, exertion, we are exerting ourselves to exist, uh, resist sin and for all of the right reasons. It is for God. It is the application of human effort to human obedience for the sake of Christ and His purposes. It is putting sin to death, all right, this is obeying with Christ's concerns driving ours. It is actually really simple. Paul explains how to make Christ's concerns be our concerns. He explains this in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Go ahead and turn there, Romans 12, 1 and 2. And once again, we're trying to figure out what does the spirit led obedience actually look like? How do we grow in it? How do we appreciate it? Now we're going to kind of move towards thinking about how to grow in it. Romans 12, 1 and 2. This is what it says. He says, Present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, right? That's spiritual worship, just offering our whole entire selves up to God. We are sanctified, set apart for His good purposes. He goes on and says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. By, and that by that testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see there the key to spirit-led human effort in the task of obedience? What is it there? It is to be transformed in the mind through the truth of God. Right, and in this passage, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, what does offering up our bodies to God as instruments of his holiness and his righteousness, what does it hinge on? It hinges on something there in the passage. We want to stick our faces in the Bible to see how what exactly Paul means when he says certain things. It's clear for all. It hinges on being transformed in the mind. Transformed in the mind. Of course, that involves the heart as well. By the truth of God, right? This transformation of mind. It actually has eyes towards discernment, determining, adjudicating, and then also embracing and living out the will of Jesus Christ for the sake of his great name. So as we strive for this spirit-led obedience, we are reminded, right, that we lived, I made this point a while ago, we lived a really long time without spiritual discernment. You lived, Christians, for a very long time without spiritual discernment. This is just part of the nature of total depravity, right? Romans says that in our sinful nature, our appraisals of all of the most important things of the stuff of life, like who is God, who are we, what's our purpose for living, our appraisals of the most important things in life were always off. Always off. Why is this? Because we're using the wrong grid. As non-Christians, we use the grid of the world, the flesh, sin. But as Christians... Uh, We have a new grid. We have God's Word. We have the Spirit of Christ driving, transforming, transforming all of our own desires such that God's concerns become our concerns. Now that we have been born again by the Spirit of God, we begin to discern spiritual things. Where Christ is Lord and we learn to be His joyful servants. We begin to see things with our own eyes towards the glory of Christ Himself. So when we were rebelling against God, right? you didn't want to give up one square inch of anything of your life, any part of your life to God. But now, now that God Himself has given His own Spirit to dwell inside of us, Christ in us, to change our hearts, we can affirm, as one has said, wholeheartedly affirm, as one has said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, cry, mine. Spirit-led obedience is to be generated out of a love for our sovereign Lord Jesus Christ. And that produces obedience. It's what spurs on obedience. It's knowing our Savior being translated by our Savior's spirit, knowing our Savior's truth. Church, as you give yourselves to being transformed through the renewal of your minds by God's truth, it's by doing that that we come to reflect more of our Father in heaven. As we are transformed through renewal of our minds by God's truth, we come more to reflect our Father in heaven. Did you notice what, that, what Christians are called there in verse 14 again? Look there. For all who are led by the Spirit of God that is governed, controlled by the Spirit of God, they are sons of God. We'll talk more about this next week. But this sonship here, this idea of being children of God, it stems all the way back into the Old Testament. And that's what Paul's reaching for there. Did you know that ancient Israel was the son of God. They were sons of God who had God as father over them. They were the very people that God was building for himself. Think back to Abraham. God had promised him that that his heirs would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Think back to Genesis. And just as God had promised, right? God was fulfilling him. He, He was multiplying Abraham's offspring and was forming a people for himself. Led by God in their midst. Think of the temple, tabernacle, even the tent where God appeared and led his people. They were to be governed by his word. Think of the law of Moses, even the Ten Commandments that resided in the Ark of the Covenant. And they were to be holy as God is holy, displaying his marvelous glory to the ends of the earth. They were sons of God. But they failed. They failed not just once. They failed over and over and over. But did God abandon his people at all? Romans said, absolutely not. Even though his people rebelled against him, he nevertheless, all because of his grace and his love and his mercy, promised to gather his people by his spirit through the work of the chosen one, that is the Messiah, that is the true Son. Where Israel failed, The Messiah, Christ Jesus, God's eternal Son, succeeded. Christ came, God the Son, to dwell in the midst of sinners, to bring us to God through His sacrifice for our sin, and by His Spirit, He would gather and form Himself a holy people, even writing the very law of God onto the Christian's heart making us alive to God, instruments of his righteousness unto the ends of the earth. That's you, Christian. Son of God, in the Son of God. We have been adopted into his family. We are heirs with God. We see next week we are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. Killing sin, therefore, pursuing obedience, therefore, pursuing holiness, therefore, is all by Christ. Christ, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ opens our minds to behold who Jesus is and what he has done and to embrace it. This killing sin is part and parcel of what it means to be a Christian in Christ Jesus. As Romans 8, 29 says, go ahead and look there. You Christian, a son of God in the son of God, what is the ultimate aim? What is God doing there in sanctifying you that is making you holy in your killing of sin We are being transformed into the image of God's Son, Jesus Christ. So friends, as you seek to kill sin, you have to be transformed in your mind so that Christ's concerns become your concerns. We are to, as one has said, think God's thoughts after Him. Think God's thoughts after Him. We are to think God's thoughts after Him. And all that is is just making God's Word the foundation of all of our thinking. This is how you come to know God and what his desires are for your life and everything in this world. It has an eye to discernment. It is even how we can go on killing sin. As Psalm 119.11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So by way of conclusion here, we got application. By way of conclusion, as we seek to think God's thoughts after him. Here are a few practical encouragements, a few practical encouragements. Uh, to be precise. First, we have memorize and meditate on his word. Memorize and meditate on his word. We know that right according to James chapter 1, the word brings life. According to John 17, it is the truth that sanctifies. So let me encourage you guys to, 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 to encourage you guys to see your mind transformed by the very truths of God to offer up your very own lives as sacrifices to God. Friends, if you know an area in which you struggle, whether it be lust, struggle with the fear of man, or with greed, or with anger, lying, laziness, whatever, let me encourage you, friends, to memorize appropriate passages of Scripture on that particular topic. Hide them in your heart so that you might not sin against God. Now I know. I know some of you guys think like, okay, we're hearing this from Jeremy again. We hear it from. We hear it a lot. We hear it from PK. We hear it from Oscar and all sorts of places. But if you haven't done it, if you know a particular area of struggle, but you do not know a verse that applies to it, one has to wonder. Well, how much do you believe that the truth of God is what transformed your mind, and the truth of God helps you be led by the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the body? Do you know? Or are you just sitting here just listening week after week after week? But you're not really embracing the very truths of God that God has given as a means of grace to know God and to help, therefore, kill sin in your very life. You know, we take all these famous quotes from all sorts of different people. We memorize them. We put them on our walls that are so inspiring at work. We tattoo other people's words on our own bodies. So then you got to think, well, what are you doing about the Word of God? some of you guys know statistics in your fantasy league sports games more than you know the word of God now for now that is a problem because if all you have at the end of the day is your fantasy sports leagues you can go to hell but if you don't but if you have the Word of God and you live by it and you put to death the deeds of the body being led by the spirit you live so you ask yourself why are you not memorizing and meditating on the very words of God that we know gives life, that we know sanctifies us in His truth, and that we know helps us put to death the deeds of the body. Second, in relation to these verses, by the way, if you're looking for verses, you know, a great place to start is just the back of your Bible. You, most Bibles have a concordance. All right? So if you struggle with anger, you can look up, okay, what, is, what does it look like to be angry? And what, is, what does God say about being angry? What does God say about being lustful? What does God say about pursuing you know, fidelity to your spouse? Right? You can go to the back of your Bibles, or you can come and talk to me, talk to Oscar, talk to others, and we can give you tons more verses on there. You could just simply type it in BibleGateway.com. You just look up BibleGateway.com, you just type in lust, and you should read a whole bunch of verses. That's a good place to start. The second thing, first is memorize and meditate. Second is do Bible studies on the topic. Do Bible studies on the topic. So let your study of God's word start from the question, what does God think about whatever topic I'm thinking about? Right, because we want to think God's thoughts after him. What does he think about morality when there is no heart, like just doing good deeds? Does that do anything? Does that actually get me in good with God? What does God think about legalism? What does he think about idolatry? Because you know what, I'm really loving money right now. Money is the controlling factor in my life. What does he think about idolatry as I idolize money? What does he think about money? What do you think about sexual morality? What does he think about laziness? What does God think, dot, 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 about everything? Because we want to think God's thoughts after him. Just think of you guys, um, think of your guys' relationships, you know, your, your discipling relationships. You seek to do good to one another. Uh, when's the last time you know you said, when someone asked you a question about some particular issue, let me look at my Bible. Let's go to the Bible to see what God has actually said about what you're struggling with. Friends, if those types of thoughts and those types of actions aren't littering your discipleship efforts, you're discipling people with the stuff probably that doesn't give life. Maybe it's just good, uh, good recommendations that the Christian and the non-Christian maybe have, have to offer. But friends, what makes our encouragement distinctly Christian is that we're using Christ's word do Bible studies on the topic. Third, give yourself to reading Christian literature about the subject. Give yourself to reading Christian literature about the subject. I know some people are going through this book on um, anger. It's called Good and Angry. It's looking at how in the Bible anger is not always bad. It actually can be good. But it also can be bad. Uh, so I am super encouraged there. Some of you, a lot of you guys are actually reading through Christian literature. Uh, about the particular subject that you want to study. Okay, that's number three. If you want a recommendation, come and talk to me. Number four, learn from other Christians about they have learned the, the same life lessons that you're seeking to learn. This is just basic Christian fellowship. It's like it's like you turning up to one of your friends and saying, hey, you know what, this is what I struggle with. I struggle with lust. Can you help me? Teach me. And let's go to the Bible to see what, what uh, God has to say about it. That's number four. Learn from the Christians. Fifth. Let the mind of Christ inform the practical things you do to stay away from sin. Let the mind of Christ inform the practical things you do to stay away from sin. So some of you guys are so discouraged that you keep on doing these particular sins. Let's say every month you're wrestling with some particular sin and you come up and you're like, Man, like I'm really struggling and I'm really discouraged. And you want me to offer some sort of method that might actually help you succeed in not doing the thing you don't want to do. I would say, look, if you're coming to me with something to do, I would actually remind you, friends, you don't only have a boundary problem, you have a love of God problem. So therefore, you want to start with, what is this love of Christ? What is the mind of Christ? What makes him so marvelous, so beautiful, so holy, so pure? And how do I make that mind mine? So you want to let the mind of Christ inform the things that you do. It's not just doing the things for the sake of doing them. It's doing them all for the right reasons, for the sake of Christ. He wants us to kill sin. Yes, do the practical things, but do them for the right reasons. Because he has called you to be holy. Because he loves you. Because he gives you the strength to. He gives you the word to help you. He gives us people to do so. We want to display God's glory to non-Christians and so on and so on and so on. And last, number six. In all of these things... We have to hold fast to the gospel. In all of these things, we have to hold fast to the gospel. If I didn't, talk, if I didn't remind us of this, you guys would just be left. We all would just be left doing things, wouldn't we? One through five. But friends, here, all we're doing is we're just what Paul is doing in Romans chapters one through four. What is he doing? he's doing is explaining the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's wanting Christians to be absolutely secure in it. That He wants us to be secure that in this fight, even though we know it's going to be difficult, even though we know we're going to stumble and fall in this fight against sin, we have to know that we have been bought by the blood of Christ. And that because we have been justified already, even though you are a sinner, even though you have been Rebelling against God, we are to know that we have been justified by faith in Christ, all by His grace, and that now there is no condemnation for those who are in Him. You have to know, right, just as Romans says, that there is peace with God and for eternity, even in your failings. You have to know that there is ongoing grace to this infinite, or ongoing access to this infinite grace that allows you, in the Spirit of God, back to the throne for more grace you have to know that you have already been freed from condemnation freedom from god's judgment and freed from the power of sin over you and so you can say that sin this is says in romans six fourteen. for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace in those times when we feel battered and beaten up by sin it's in those times that we cry out Father. And he hears us. He reassures us. He reassures us specifically by his promises that he will never leave us nor forsake us and that nothing, absolutely nothing, will separate us from the very love of Christ. God has already displayed his great love for you. So if you tend to beat yourself up, if you struggle with an ungodly condemnation and an here Christ's promises just come alongside of you. If God has not already given you the most important thing to the Father that is His very own eternal Son so that you would be forgiven of your sins and stand just before a holy God, even though you are righteous, will He not surely save you from everything else? Will He not surely deliver you from the wrath to come because He has already given you His most precious Son, the one in whom we find ourselves to be the very Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you for the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. We praise you that you have freed us from the power of sin, and so the dominion of sin no longer has power. Over us. We thank you that your reign of grace is now over us, and so we are freed to live to your glory. Father, we pray that you would help disabuse us from any notion that this Christian life is an easy one, or that this Christian life is one where we can give ourselves freely to sin. We pray to take even these words and implant them in our hearts, so that we might know what is involved in this life of a Christian, this life of freedom. Lord, we pray that it therefore would cause us to look to the sins that we struggle with even right now, and it would help us put them to death by the Spirit. Lord, we offer up our minds, we offer up our hearts. We pray, Lord, that you would help us go to your Word, transform us in your Spirit according to the truth, so that we might look more like you, our Father so that we might act more like our very holy Lord, and so that the fruits of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, might work itself in us, that we also might be holy, holy to the Lord. Lord, we pray that we wouldn't be lazy in our fight against sin. Lord, we pray that we would be killing sin in the power of the Spirit that we would be holy to the ends of the earth, all to the praise of your glorious grace and the gospel that says that there is freedom in Jesus Christ. In your name we pray, amen.